me just, let me just, okay, let me just mute everyone. Okay. We're, uh, <clears throat> this is the Shil Iluin Ishmos, Mephraim Shmuel Ben Avramaria Cohen, Chaya Tova Bast Eliezer Mendel HaKohen on the Book of Yechezkel. We're currently in Chapter 5. Uh, let me just turn my phone off for a second. There we go. Uh, we're currently in Yechezkel, Chapter 5. Last week we spent uh, virtually the whole shear on chapter 5, verse 5, um, just to sum up what God speaking. Zos Yerushalayim, this is Yerushalayim, Zoha Goyim, God placed it in the center of humanity. Santiha, that's where he put it. And he placed it in such a in such a manner that all the lands would surround it. And we discussed last week this idea that Zos Yerushalayim, there's an expectation of Yerushalayim. God expected things of Yehuda. Thing, God expected things of Yerushalayim, but didn't get it. And now we come to verses 6 and 7, um, which really introduced some of the most... Uh, devastating and darkest verses in the whole of Tanakh. Um, for those that have read ahead, uh, know that this end of this chapter is not very pretty. Um, but uh, we have to deal with it. So we're going to read verses 6 and 7 together. Um, and then we're going to raise four particular questions. And then we're going to answer them one by one, hopefully. Um, so God says in chapter in chapter. Five verse six. You shall I exchange my judgments, my Torah for wickedness more than the other nations. And my statutes, which are laws that uh, defy our understanding more than the lands uh, that surrounded her. Because my laws, my commandments in the Torah um, were rejected. And uh, my statutes, uh, they didn't follow them. Therefore, so says God, because of this, because you've uh, Prepared yourself, so to speak. To prepare yourself. You prepared yourself to go astray. Uh, more than the nations. Who are in your vicinity. Again, my chukim, you didn't follow. And you didn't keep the Torah. And even the customs, laws of the nations that were that surrounded you, you didn't do those either. You didn't keep the, those laws either. So these two psukim, uh, are, so to speak, um, the reasons why God is going to do what he's going to do. And uh, in order to understand these verses, uh, we have to just have a quick review of the first seven verses in the chapter and uh, raise the questions that need raising. 
So just to review uh, the chapter, Yechezkel has been told in the first part of this chapter to shave his hair, to shave his beard, to divide it up into three piles and dispose of the hair in various ways. A third needs to be burned inside his model, his model city uh, that he built, uh, which is symbolic of the Jews that will die in Yerushalayim from plague and famine before the Babylonians even break through. A third um, of the hair representing a third of the Jewish people will be chopped up with a sword, symbolic of the Jews that will die in and around Yerushalayim by the sword. And a third will be scattered to the winds, which is symbolic of the Jewish people and the destruction and suffering they're going to encounter in the forthcoming Babylonian siege of Yerushalayim and also in the years ahead in exile, not just this exile, but exiles in the future, um, as God promises, he will send the sword after them, wherever the wind takes them, the sword, God's sword will follow them into their exiles. Uh, then he's told to take a small amount of the hair, uh, to place it inside his cloak, symbolizing that there will be survivors in Yerushalayim. Um, but Yechezkel is told to take a small amount of the hair, a small amount of the survivors, from that hair that he enclosed in his cloak, representing that some of the survivors, uh, he's got to throw that hair into the fire, representing the fact that some of the initial survivors will also suffer terrible consequences. That was through verse 4. And now in verse 5, which we discussed last week, God describes Yerushalayim as the center of the world and what is expected of the people that are placed in the center stage, uh, that they have to be an example uh, to the world of how to behave. And now in verses 6 and 7, which we just read, God gives the overriding reasons for the suffering and exile of the Jews when he describes all the things that they were supposed to do but didn't do. Rebelling against the Torah um, is the basic uh, complaint. Uh, instead of being the Orlagoyim, supposed to be the light into the nations, and they didn't uh, fulfill that obligate, obligation. They swap the Torah for the practice of the pagans around them. So that seems to be the general focus of this chapter up to this point. But there are four significant questions that need answering here. And as I said, we're going to deal with them one by one. Um, and again, it's not a pretty sight. Um, question number one, uh, which is a point I've raised before in the shir. What is the significance of Yechezkel's hair uh, being the symbol of the Jewish people? He's told to cut off his hair, put it into three piles, and uh, burn some, cut some to pieces, and scatter some to the wind. Some of them are going to represent survivors. Why hair? Why, why, uh, why not something else? What's the significance of the hair? Number two, why are some of the survivors, some of the hair, thrown back into the fire after Yechezkel placed them in his cloak, uh, as if to afford them protection? Like if, if they were going to die anyway, why did God say, you know, put them in your cloak to represent the fact that they're going to be survivors and then immediately take them out again and then throw them in the fire again? Like, what's the point of that? Um, third question is in verse six, which is what we've just read. Uh, after telling us in verse five that Yerushalayim is the center of the spiritual world, God says that the Jews have rebelled more than all the lands that are around it. What does that mean? What do you mean more than the lands that are around it? 
uh, they've rebelled against the Torah. The people around it didn't, didn't have a Torah. The, they, the, they, they can't be accused of rebelling against the Torah, the Mishpatim and the Chukim. They didn't have any Chukim and Mishpatim. So what does it mean that they rebelled um, against God more than the Min more than the lands that are around it? What does that mean? And finally, the, I think it's, this is the most important question that needs answering. In both verses 6 and 7, God complains twice over that the Jews haven't followed the Torah. He says in verse 6, You didn't keep the Torah, or you you made fun of the Torah, or you desecrated the Torah. And the statutes, the laws that uh, are difficult to understand or almost impossible for a human to understand, you didn't keep them either. And then in verse 7, God says, um, He repeats it. Why does he repeat it? Exactly the same language or similar language. And then God says a very, very curious thing right at the end of verse 7. He said, uh, Like the customs and laws of the nations around you, you didn't keep them either. Like, what does that mean? Why were they supposed to keep the laws of the people around them? The laws of the people around them are pagan laws. Why would they be expected to keep the laws of the people around them? Um, almost as if to say, you know, God's like intimating, like if he couldn't keep the Torah, at least keep somebody's laws. Um, but he didn't. So exactly what does that mean? What do all these things mean? Um, so this is where it gets a little bit tricky. So we'll answer these questions one by one. <clears throat> the most important question that uh, I raised earlier on in the year, which has been people, I'm sure people have been writing to me uh, about this question: the significance of Yechezkel shaving his hair. Now, the significance of Yechezkel shaving his hair. What does this remind you of? Who shaves his hair? Who's required to? Sorry? Nazir. I didn't hear you, sorry. Nazir. Nazir, correct. And Nazir is, is really the only person that's required to shave his hair. Um, it should remind you of a Nazir who has to refrain from shaving his hair for the period of his Nazirut, Nazirus. Now, a period of Nazirus uh, is at least 30 days. Stam Nazirus Shloshimiyam. So, tomorrow is Nazir, it's Halacha, Lamaisa. If you take on the Zeros, you can't take on the Zeros for a day or a week. You have to take it on for a minimum of 30 days. Stam the Zeros, Shloshim Yom. Regular the Zeros is 30 days. When the period of the Zeros ends, he shaves his hair off. But what exactly has, uh, does he do with that hair? Anybody? What does he do with the hair? Anyone? No. Okay, so let's look at the Torah. The Torah tells you what to do. This is a pasuk in Bamidbar, chapter six, verse eighteen. Begilach hanazir pesach ohel moed esrosh nizro. The Nazarite shall shave his head um, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, which is at the entrance of the Beit Hamikdash in uh, common parlance. Belokach esar rosh nizro, and he shall take the hair of his head that he cut from the period of when he was a nazir. The nosan alo and he 
burns it in fire. Which is under the pot containing a peace offering. He has to, a Nazi has to bring various offerings, including a shlomim, a peace offering, and a chatos, sin offering. And he cuts his hair off and he puts it into the fire underneath the shlomim, which is on the, on the Mizbeach. Um, so what's going on here with the Nazi? First, uh, he's uh, an individual who can't cut his hair. Um, sometimes you have a Nazi who's a Nazi for a number of years. If you look at the stories in Tanakh, so you'll see that uh, certainly we know that Absalom was a Nazi. Um, Absalom, the son of David Amelach, um, was a Nazi. Um, we know that, uh, or it's implied in the text that Shmuel, the first or the last of the uh, Shoftim and the first of the Nevi'im Rishonim, was also a Nazir. And who's the main, fam- most famous Nazir of all? Shimshim. Shimshim. Shimshim's the most famous Nazir of all. He's got special halacha, so he's, uh, but he was a, a Nazir for life. So you, you could have a nausea that's uh, zero, sometimes lasts a number of years, sometimes lasts a life, lifetime. Um, so when he finishes his period of Nazirus, uh, he's required. So he goes through a period of time where it's absolutely forbidden for him to shave. And then he gets to a period of time where he's required to shave all his hair. And the question is, what's that meant to teach us? Uh, what, what's that all about? Uh, growing your hair and uh, re- being required to grow your hair and then being required to cut it off. So Chazal, we'll discuss the Gemara in a second, it's a Tosefter in Nozer in the fourth Peirik. Chazal discuss a case of a Kohen uh, who is also a Tana. We'll, we'll say his name in a minute. Uh, he'll recognize his name. <clears throat> and he, he had a, a Minak. His minhag was that he would never eat from the sacrifices that had, Nazir had to bring after his period of Naziris ended. Now, as we just said, a Nazir has to bring a Korban Shlomim. Now, a Korban Shlomim is eaten, and it's partially eaten by <coughs> the person that brings the sacrifice, and it's partially eaten by the, by the Kohen. But this particular Kohen, who happened to be a Tanner, he wouldn't eat a, from a sacrifice that a Nazir brought. Um, why wouldn't he do so? Uh, and the reason is, the Gemara says, we're going to discuss this in, in a second, because he felt that most Nazirim, most uh, people who became a Nazi were insincere. And that means that at the moment a person took upon himself a period of Naziris, which is a Nader, Minha Torah, Harei Alai Nazi, that uh, you have to make the declaration in the, in the language of a Nader, I am a Nazi, I'm becoming a Nazi. Could be that he had good intentions. But as time wore on or time wears on and the prohibitions of being a Nazi became more and more difficult to fulfill and his life became more tedious and obviously more restrictive. He couldn't go to the pub and his hair was getting in his eyes and, uh, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't go to any place where there was a, a possibility, even a possibility um, where he could become Tomei, yeah, impure, uh, life becomes very boring and life becomes very difficult. So this Tana, this Cohen, felt that most Nazirim regretted the vow of Naziris that they had taken and therefore the sacrifice they brought at the end of that period of Naziris 
would be insincere. Now, that is uh, the case we're talking about here. Um, and this is where the Gemara in Nozir, it's actually a Tosef, it's brought in Nozir, and so it's in the fourth period. There's one exception to this case. This Tana, who is a Kohen, is somebody called Shimon HaTzadik. Now, most people have heard of Shimon HaTzadik. He appears in Pirkei Obas in the first chapter. Shimon HaTzadik, Hu Hoya Omer, Al-Shlosha Devorim HaOlam Omei. There are three things that the world stands on. Al-Torah, Val-Avoda, Val-Gamilas Chasodim. Torah, servitude to God, and Gamilas Chasodim, good deeds. So this is uh, the guy you're dealing with here. Shimon HaTzadik, who is a Kohen, is Kohen Godo. He says as follows, and I'm now quoting the Gemara, the Tosefta, in my entire life, I ate the offering of a Nozir only once. And um, the story is as follows. A man came to, came from the south, and I saw that he, this is Shimon HaTzadik talking, a man came to me from the south, and I saw that he had beautiful eyes, a handsome face, and curly hair. I said to him, my son, what did you see that caused you to shave off your beautiful hair? Bear in mind that the youth hadn't shaved his hair yet. In other words, Shimon Natsadik is uh, got Ruach HaKodesh, and he meets this, this kid who's got beautiful, long, flowing locks. And he said to him, what, what, why did you shave off your hair as if he's, your beautiful hair as if he'd already done so when he hadn't done so yet? And Shimon Atsadi continues, he said to me, I was a shepherd in my village and I came to draw water from the river and I looked at my reflection and I realized how handsome I was. And my Yetzirah took hold of me and sought to drive me from this world. It suggested to me that my looks could be used to seduce women and commit sin. And I said to myself, and I said to my hair, evil one, talking about himself, you should not have taken pride in something which does not belong to you, in something which is going to turn you into dust and worms. Because at the end of life, however beautiful you were when you were 25, you end up as dust and worms. And I therefore take upon myself to shave off all my hair for the sake of heaven. Um, this youth, so to speak, caught himself just in time before his Yetzirah could convince him that his beauty was actually his. This idea that your beauty is actually yours is something that's mentioned by Shlomo Melech. Right at the end, we say it every Friday night, Sheker HaChain Behevel HaYofi. That the beauty and, uh, and grace are deceptive and uh, false. They don't mean anything. And uh, the real thing that you should look at is not the physical beauty. What's the, what's the next line? The fear of God is the only thing that is beautiful about a person. So this young man said to Shimon Atzadik, so I decided to let my hair grow until it was really stunningly beautiful and then shave it off as a nozit to demonstrate that sheker hachein vehevel hayofi, and that human beauty is transitory, and to demonstrate my commitment to God, and counteract any arrogance and conceit and vanity that I may have had as a result of being so handsome. Upon hearing this, 
Reb Shimon Atzadik patted the child or the young man on his head and kissed him and said to him, my son, may people like you become many, people who do the will of God and your end of Nazir offering I will eat. Through you, uh, through you is fulfilled the words of the Torah. And he quoted a, a pasuk in the Torah to him, which is from Bamidbar in chapter six. Speak to the children of Israel and should say to them, Ish o Isha ki lindo neder nozir. A man or woman who sets himself apart by making the vow to become a nozir, lahazir lahashem. He's doing it, he should know that he's not doing it for any other reason other than lahazir lahashem, to abstain for the sake of God, to defy his yetzirah for the sake of God, not to become tome, not to drink wine, not to shave his hair. This is all abstention for the sake of God. Hair, says the Shreb Shimon Atzadik, represents the beauty of a person. And uh, the Gemara says uh, the Mephorashim over this is one of the reasons why married women uh, are supposed to cover their hair. It's not that hair is the only representation of a person's beauty, says the Gemara, but it's something that stands out, the crowning glory of a person's physical appearance and beauty. The Nazir takes his crowning glory, his hair, and in shaving it off at the end of his Nazirus, his period of being a Nazir, and handing it over to God by burning it on the Mizbeach, he demonstrates his commitment to God, and he is essentially saying, I wish to remove all semblance of arrogance, conceit, and vanity that I may have in favor of dedication to God. We Jews, and this is the, 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 the parish on the Gomorrah, I'm quoting to you now from various Rishonim. We Jews, so to speak, are the crowning glory of mankind. We are there to demonstrate to the world how to commit to dedicate one's life to God and to seek out godliness, to emulate God. And that's why God says here in verse 5, Zos Yerushalayim, Zohagayim. This is Yerushalayim in the middle of the nations. Samtir, I place them there for a reason. That they should be surrounded by nations that can learn with them. They are the, they are the example to the rest of humanity. We represent God in this world. We are God's crowning glory. We are God's hair, so to speak, inside uh, of his creation, on the top, so to speak, the top of the pyramid of his creation. That special gift and responsibility means that we have the potential, the capacity to be the most beautiful of all creations in a spiritual sense. But the Jews never lived up to those expectations. They never lived up to that potential. They never lived up to that capacity for spiritual excellence. So Yechezkel is, is told to shave off his hair and dispose of it. And the reason is to demonstrate that latent potential of the Jews the beauty of their hair was never utilized for the betterment of themselves or the rest of humanity. Their lack of spiritual recognition of their special gifts and responsibilities to the rest of humanity was abused. And now their hair, their crowning glory, their city of God, Zos Yerushalayim, from where they were supposed to demonstrate this gift and responsibility, has to be burnt. 
just like the hair of the nozzit. And God's message is essentially this. Just like when the nozzit shaves his head, the message should become very clear, like it was to the youth in the story with Shimon Atzadik, that shaving the head is designed to bring you back down to earth and recognize Sheker Achein Behevel that the reality is that we all have to do uh, everything to ensure our survival, assuming human beings and Jews, and travel the correct path. And the only way to do that, the only way to guarantee survival, uh, the survival of ourselves, and set, be the example of, that we're supposed to be, Zos Yerushalayim, is a commitment and dedication to God. God, so to speak, instructs Yecheskel to shave, us, shave up his hair and his beard to remind the people that a Nozis shaving his head is designed to wake him up to his true path of spiritual rather than material growth. And that is the message here, that for the Jews to get themselves back on the right track, they do too, they too have to do something that shows that they have rededicated themselves to God. Only then can there be healing and reconciliation between God and the Jewish people. And just like Shimon Atzadi told the handsome youth in the story that we just discussed, that becoming a Nozir for the right reasons, which is to quell arrogance, vanity and conceit um, over your own physical endowments. My son, may people like you become many people who do the will of God of Israel. So he says, just like the hair of the Nozir, just like the hair of Yecheskel will grow back with time, so too, if the Jews learn the lessons of the punishment, the suffering, the exile that's coming up, if they learn that, those lessons well, their hair, their glory, their unique relationship with God can go grow back again and be renewed in the future. So this is... Um, this is something I think that David uh, Barrett mentioned, um, this idea of the hair also, it grows back. You cut the hair off, but uh, you can grow back. But the essential message here is the message of the Nozir. The message of the Nozir and the message of Shimon Atzadik is too many people who become a Nozir don't do it for the right reasons, or by the time they get to the end of their Nazirus, the period of being a Nozir, they're not sincere. And the whole point of being a Nazir is to cut your hair off and put it in the fire as a demonstration that Shekhar Achein Vehevel the material world and the, the joys and delights and the temptations and seductions of the physical world are not what we're here for. Burn them. Burn them in dedication to God, as the Posik says. Clearly, the Posik says, uh, which I quoted to you uh, before, uh, abstention is for the sake of God. The nazir is for the sake of God. It's the reckon, recognition at the end of the period when you throw your hair into the fire that the physical world, the material world, the seductions and temptations of this world are irrelevant. And it can all go up in smoke. And... um we end up as worms and uh, worm food. It's the reality of it all. And to uh, understand that uh, the burning of the hair and the burning of Yerushalayim 
uh, resonate together. The burning of the hair of the Nozir, the burning of the hair of Yechezkel, and the burning of Yerushalayim are to teach exactly the same message. A recommitment to God and dedication to God. So that is, according to most Mepharshim, there are other opinions here, um, but that is the essential understanding of why uh, God commanded um, Yechezkel to cut his hair off. It's a message to the Jewish people. Anyone with a, anyone with a question up to this point? Okay. So that's the answer to question one. There are, again, um, Joan uh, made a, a suggestion. Um, I'm not going to mention it. I could mention it here, but uh, it, it's, uh, it's to do with uh, the parish of Shemini and the fact that Moshe tells Aaron that, uh, don't leave your head uncut. Don't run your, your begodim after the death of uh, Nodov and Abihu. But uh, the the connection to from that to this is a little bit tenuous. So I don't, I don't want to go into it because the reality is that um, in Parashas Kisekse, as she quite rightly points out, um, one of the things you do with a, a captive, a captive woman, non-Jewish woman, is you shave her head. So also it's uh, the connection from that to this is a little bit tenuous. Um, but this, this is the, this is the idea that's brought down by most Mephorshim here uh, on the idea of the hair was supposed to be Nazirim. Uh, and, uh, if we can't, if we can't behave in a sincere manner, the, the Nazir is supposed to behave in, then all the hair that goes into the fire. So eventually it'll grow back, but uh, it'll take a long time. That's, that's the first question. The second question is, which we dealt, which we asked, why are some, when, uh, Yechezkel is told to, uh, split the hairs representing the people, the Jewish people, the people of Yehuda and the people of Yushalayim, uh, he's told to take a few of the hairs, which represent the survivors, some of the survivors. And, but then he's supposed to take a few of those hairs, which represents the survivors and throw them back into the fire. Um, why does he do that? Now, we discussed uh, part of this answer earlier on in verse 4. Uh, if you remember in verse 4, the Malvin explains um, that the survivors who were eventually burnt were killed because of the action of an individual called Yishmol ben Netanya. Uh, Yishmol ben Netanya was uh, a kanoi, a zealot, who assassinated Nebuchadnezzar's Governor of Yehuda, who was Gedalia, uh, again, hence the fast day, Tsam Gedalia. They didn't just assassinate him, he assassinated his Babylonian guards, and the Babylonians took revenge uh, for that incident and killed many of Yerushalayim's survivors. That's the, that was the opinion they about of, of the Malvin there. Rashi says those survivors that were eventually killed were the false prophets, two false prophets, Achav ben Kulia and Sidkiyahu ben Masia, um, whom King Nebuchadnezzar roasted in fire. So why did he do that? So uh, when we when we discussed this earlier on, we discussed this Rashi, I mentioned that I'd t- tell you the story because it is relevant here, uh, exactly what happened. And the story is brought in the Gemara in Sanhedrin, on Daftadi Gimel, on page 93. Um, the Gomorrah there is said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, who uh, is expressing the opinion of 
the of uh, Reb Shimon Bar Yochai. Uh, what did he do? Reb Nebuchadnezzar toasted Achov ben Kulia and Sidkiyol ben Masaya like wheat, which uh, the Gemara says uh, wheat you toast like uh, uh, toast in our in our thing. You toast your bread on both sides, so they were they were roasted on both sides. What did they do? So the Gemara says. They went to the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. They were part of the Golas exile, and they fancied themselves as um, prophets. They were trying to convince people they were prophets, but they were false prophets. So they, the two of them went to, they found where the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar was, and they made an appointment to see her. And one of them, Achor ben Kalia, said to her that um, we, I had a, um, a prophecy that you need to submit yourself to my friend Sidkiyo ben Masia and engage in sexual intercourse with him. And uh, then, after that, his friend went to see her. Sidkiyo ben Masia said to her, uh, that God told me through prophecy that you've got to also not just uh, you know have sex with me, but you've got to have sex with him, with Achel ben Kalir as well. And uh, she was a little bit of a superstitious woman, but she was sensible enough to go to her father and uh, tell her father what they said to her. Uh, so the Gemara says that Nebuchadnezzar said to them, listen, these two are false prophets because the God of these people abhors this type of behavior. Uh, it seems Nebuchadnezzar was uh, au fait with Jewish law and it's... Uh, um, uh, dislike of anything uh, adulterous, anything uh, uh, sexually perverted. He said, the God of these people abhors lewdness. So these are false prophets. When they come to you, uh, if you make make an appointment for them to come to you and then send them to me. So when they came to her, she sent them straight to her father, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, who told you to do this? They said it was God. We had a prophecy from God. So Nebuchadnezzar said to them, but I have asked Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about this. And they said to me, this type of behavior is prohibited. Remember who Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were the guys that refused to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, they ended up in the fiery furnace. But they survived. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a lot of time for Hananiah, Mishol, and Azariah. And uh, he took their advice, as well as Daniel's advice, on many things Jew- Jewish. So Nebuchadnezzar said, listen, I've spoken to, you know, Hananiah, Mishol, and Azariah about this, and they said it's prohibited what you're suggesting. So they said to him, yeah, but uh, they might be prophets, which they weren't, but we too are prophets. And God didn't say, doesn't say his prophecy to them. He said it to us. God doesn't always tell all his prophets all the prophecies, which is not true. God does. Whoever the, the golden rule is that uh, all the prophets in a particular generation, when one prophet gets his prophecy, all the other prophets in the generation get the same prophecy. It's just that they know who the prophecy is aimed at. And uh, it's not a prophecy for them, but they, or it's not a prophecy for them to transmit but they get access to the prophecy. So they said they made up this nonsense that uh, they're prophets, and God told them, but he didn't tell them. He God told us, and he didn't tell them. So Nebuchadnezzar said to them, okay, if that's true, I'll put you to the test 
the same test as I put Hanania uh, Mishal Nazaria to. Uh, you'll go in the fiery furnace. So uh, the two false prophets, Achov ben Kalia and Tzidkiyo ben Masia, complained. And they said to Nebuchadnezzar, listen, there were three of them, and there are only two of us, and our merit is not great enough to save us from the fire. So, you know, that's, that's not a fair test. So Nebuchadnezzar said to them, okay, that's no problem. There's plenty of Jews around here. You can choose a third person, whoever you wish. It will be put uh, in the fiery furnace with you. And so they said, you know, we choose the Kohen Godot, right? Hope against hope. Um, but Yoshua Kohen Godot, who was a big tzaddik, they chose him because they thought um, if Yoshua Kohen Godot comes with us, since his merit is great, his he will protect us inside the fiery furnace. So I'm sure he wasn't very pleased about it, but nevertheless... They took the three of them down and cast them into the furnace. The two false prophets were burnt and toasted alive. And Yeshua, Kohen Godel, his garments were slightly singed, and but he came out alive. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar said to Yeshua, Kohen Godel, I know you are righteous because you were delivered from the fire, just like Hanania, uh, Mishol, and Nazariah. But what's the reason the fire slightly... Uh, affected and singed your 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 garments uh, but in relation to Hanani, Mishael and Azariah the fire never affected them at all so Yeshua Kohen Gol said to Nebuchadnezzar there were three righteous people and I am one um, so Nebuchadnezzar said to him listen wasn't Abraham one person and he was also cast into a furnace and the fire had no effect on him but Yeshua Kohen Gol said there in the case of Abraham there were no wicked people with him. And license to cause damage was not given to the fire at all. Here in this case, there were wicked people with me and the license, the Malach, the Malach in charge of uh, Malach HaMashchis, uh, had a license to cause damage. And uh, as a result of that, I was affected. So as Rashi says, these two false prophets, Achal ben Kolia and Tzidkiyo ben Masia, are examples of the hair that Yechezkel originally put in his cloak, which signifies that some survivors of Yerushalayim were afforded initial protection uh, from the Babylonians. But eventually, many of these were killed, not because they were destined to be killed, but because of their own free will decisions and their own behavior. In the exile, the protection that was given to them originally was removed from them and they ended up being killed as well. Yeah, well, these two ended up being burnt alive. So that is the way Rashi understands it. That's the way the Gomorrah understands it, these, these idea of the survivors. And some of the survivors will uh, perish as well. And uh, the reality is that God can save you. But uh, if you stop making bad decisions after that, so uh, he might not save you a second time. He might not save you a third time. He might not save you a fourth time. Will be a, there'll come a point at which point God will say, enough is enough. And uh, he will remove your protection. Why God should would, would, would protect uh, false prophets, well, that's a different story. But uh, that's the way that the Gemara, that's the way that Rashi understands this idea of uh, the survivors the hair that Yechezkel put in his cloak um, uh, to represent the survivors. And of course, 
across the land of Yehuda, I can't stress enough, across the land of Yehuda, so there's a lot of uh, survivors. Uh, 1.8 million survivors. Uh, the Jewish population at that particular time was close on 3 million, some say 4 million, but um, uh, certainly a million were killed, 947,000 were killed uh, and in, in Yehuda, and uh, certainly many more were killed in exile. But uh, as I also intimated to you, the Babylonian exile got easier as it went along, till the point came where, again, at the end of the Babylonian exile, the majority of the Jews chose not to go back to the land of Israel. So that is um, part of the answer to the second question um, that we have on this chapter. Why there were survivors, why why Yechezkel put survivors in his pocket, some hair in his pocket, representing survivors, and then he took some out and threw them in, because as the nature of human beings is, uh, they don't recognize when they've been saved. Uh, thank God for their salvation. They go back to their original behavior, and eventually God, God says enough, throws his hands up, so to speak, and says enough. But uh, there is a huge question here regarding hanging uh, uh, over Rashi and the Gomorrah's interpretation of this story here. You would think, and this is raised by uh, uh, Kabbalistic sources, and it's also raised by regular, what we would call regular commentators on this Gomorrah and on the way Rashi understands this Gomorrah, which is the way I've explained it to you. Um, you would think that the survivors of Yushalayim's destruction, which are represented by the hairs that Yechezkel cut and placed in his cloak for protection, would be the greatest of all the Jews of Yushalayim. That would be the intuitive thought that uh, God says, you know, Take a few of those hairs and put it in your pocket because they're going to be the survivors. You think God will be saving the, uh, you know, all the tzaddikim. Whereas the reality is that uh, if you look in the Gemara and Shabbos, uh, you'll see the story of the destruction of Yushalayim towards the end of the Gemara and Shabbos. Um, you'll see that uh, and, uh, some of the greatest tzaddikim of the generation were murdered. And uh, the same is true of the Holocaust. You know, that... Uh, how many great Tamidi Chachamim were murdered in the Holocaust as well. So you'd think that, uh, as is pointed out, that uh, the survivors, the hair that Yechezka was told to put in his pocket, would have represented the Tzadikim, not these uh, <clears throat> not these two false prophets. Um, and even if they weren't the greatest, you would think that those lucky enough to survive the massacres in Yerushalayim would acknowledge how lucky they were to escape the carnage and do a complete teshuva. Yet we see that some of these survivors turn out to be false prophets. Not only false prophets, but uh, people with no morals and with no semblance of recognition of what God had done and how lucky they were to still be alive and how vital it was for all those that survived <clears throat> to do their best to reconnect with God, as we've just been discussing with the idea of Nazirus. The idea at the end of the Nazirus period is to reconnect to God. So you think if you're going to be saved, you're going to be the one one of the hairs that isn't going to be thrown into the fire. You'll do the best you can to reconnect with God um, whilst, whilst the exile is on. Um, but human nature is a very strange thing. God offers opportunities to all types of characters to do Teshuvah. Um, but they have to acknowledge the privilege uh, a tremendous privilege they've been given and return to God. 
Otherwise, the tables can be turned on them very swiftly. As the, uh, the Vilna Gorn points out, the idea of the Sulam, um, God, the world is a Sulam, is a, is a, a ladder. And, uh, you, you spend your life climbing up the ladder. And then just as you're about to reach the top, God flips, flicks it over and you're right at the bottom again. And God can do that. And God does do that. And, uh, if there's no recognition, no hakorosatov to God, when he rescues you from an impossible situation or a dangerous situation or a tricky situation or an illness or whatever, um, you could end up roasting in the fire of Babylon as well. And as for why the tzaddikim weren't saved in Yerushalayim, we're not going to tackle that question now. Um, it's not a question that's easily answered. Um, we'll deal with partially uh, a little bit later on in a later chapter. But it's uh, it's important to to recognize here that uh, when the mashchis is released, when God, so to speak, releases the angel of death, the angel of death doesn't care if you're a tzaddik or a rasha, right? Just doesn't care. If you get in his sights, you're gone. And this is something that uh, the Gemara and Moed Cotton, I wasn't going to mention this, but I'm going to mention it now. One second. Um, it seems like Yechezkel sounds like a litva. Yeah, it does. That is that the pleasures of the material world should be avoided. Yeah, we're all guilt. If you're a lip back, everything's about guilt and uh, waiting for death and punishment. That's that's Lithuanian way. Happiness is for Goyim. Erwin, where are you? Where is Erwin? Don't yeah, I'm you. here. Oh, there you are, Erwin. Are you in Lithuanian? Are you a lip back? I am from the nexus between... My family came from Belarus, which was oh, partly so it's the same thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're, you're from the same thing. So the my Rebbe used to say Zaydasali Rabbi said the the motto of the Lithuanian Jews is happiness is for Goya, and um, and uh, you know if you look at the uh, the droshes and the musa of the Lithuanian world, so you see happiness is for Goya. Uh, the Hasidim, on the other hand. Preach that God gave us the material pleasures to enjoy. Yeah, even for the Lithuanians, you're supposed to enjoy it, but recognize whose bene- uh, beneficence concern these benefits. Uh, this is particularly interesting in view of the turmoil in Ukraine and Belarus for this area of the planet. There's a nexus between Hasidism, Hasidism and Litvaks. Yes, it was. Uh, yeah. Very, very interesting uh, analogy. Yeah, it does sound like Yechezkel's a bit of a lit back. Um, well before the uh, well before the world of Lithuanian Jews. But um, yeah, the point taken. Uh, the idea, uh, I was just going to mention a Gomorrah Mode Cotton uh, a second ago. What, what was that? What was that in connection with? Uh, oh, yeah, we're talking about the um, the Mashchis, when the Malcham Abbas is released, he doesn't care, right? So first of all, you've got the Gemara in Chagig on Daf Gimel, in Daf Dalid. You see the, 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 the Malcham Abbas doesn't care who he takes, right? That's his job, right? And just like the Sultan's got a job to do, he's neither good nor evil. Um, so the Gemara in Boba Bashar on Daf Yud Bey says, Sultan Zua, Zua Malcham Abbas are the same people. They're doing their job, right? No, no, no favors done. No matter who you are, if you get in his way, he takes you and full stop. And, uh, 
this is a very hard lesson for us to see because we can't understand sometimes why some people get taken. Sadiqim and the uh, righteous people have terrible, difficult lives and they die an early death. We don't understand it. We'll deal with it in a little bit, have a little bit of a go at trying to understand it in a later share, in a later chapter. But again, it's one of the things that you just have to stay clear from because you, then you get into questions about the Holocaust and uh, issues such as that. And really, there are no answers. Um, so that is really the answer to question number two, the survivors. And the, the answer is that, yes, God will provide you with survival under certain circumstances. But the expectation is that you won't be a fool um, and uh, and treat that survival and just go back to your own ways. Because if you do that, you could end up roasting, roasting in a Babylonian <clears throat> a fire pit. Uh, not literally, but um, but euphemistically. Just the question of how many chances God gives you. Um, when a person's lucky enough to be saved, so... That's a huge bonus and take advantage of it. And the, uh, the corollary of that is if you don't take advantage of it, it's, uh, it's not going to be good. So that is, that is the answer to the first two questions. We dealt with the hair and we dealt with the survivors. And now we come to the two verses that we, uh, started with today, verses six and seven. Uh, just to remind you of the question here in verse six. But uh, in verse 6, after telling us in verse 5 that Yerushalayim is the center of the spiritual world, God says the Jews have rebelled. Min More than all the lands that are around it. Now, what the heck does that mean? More than all the lands that are around it. So, um, like, uh, the lands that are around it, they didn't know. They didn't, uh, they're not supposed to put tefillin on every morning. They're not supposed to, you know keep kosher. They're not supposed to keep Shabbos. So why did they reject, why did they reject the Torah more than the other people around them? So Rashi's got a very simple solution. Rashi says, he quotes the boss, so he says it's all to do with King Menashe. The King Menashe, he quotes a boss from Divrei Ayomim, in the second book of Divrei Ayomim, the book of Chronicles in chapter 33. The boss says, Menashe as Yehuda, but Yoshva Yushalayim and Menashe led uh, Yehuda, that's his country. He was the king of Yehuda and the inhabitants of Yushalayim. He led the Jewish people in a direction that was more evil than the nations whom God had destroyed before the Jews came to the land of Israel. So, so and again, referring to the first uh, Rashi in the Torah. Got, uh, got a rush, he asked the question, why, why on earth do we need to know about the story of creation? Like, it, why, why would it, uh, why, why is it necessary for us to know the story of creation? So Rashi says the answer is, so, uh, if anyone comes to us and tells us, uh, you know, uh, as they do still till this very day, you're in somebody else's land, you've stolen that land from somebody else. The answer is God created this world and God gives it each bit of this world to whoever he feels it is an appropriate land for. He gave it to the seven nations and then he kicked them out and then he gave it to us. So the uh, Rashi says, here you've got, 
There was a reason God threw the seven tribes out of the land of Israel. But the Jews came in and they behaved even worse than they did, if it's possible. Well, it is possible because that's uh, a Pesach in Tanakh. Um, so Rashi says, some interpret this verse to mean that the original nations do not accept God's Torah. So little will be expected of them. But Israel did accept it upon themselves and transgressed it, despite their assurances on Mount Sinai that they would keep God's laws. Nasevanishma. I think there's something I quoted in Shia. This idea of Nasevanishma. Nasa corresponds to, it's got the same uh, letters as Asaph. And Nishma corresponds to Nishma for, from the language of Yishmael. They didn't want it. But the Jews said, nah, so we're not like Esau. The Nishma, we're not, not like Yishmael. We'll accept it. We accept the Torah. And because of this, because of the, the fact that the Jews accepted it, and not only did they not keep it, but they behaved in a worse fashion than the people that were thrown out, that were vacated, in order that the Jews should come and live there, because of this, God's presence, God's Shekhinah, whatever that means, whatever the word Shekhinah means, just use God's presence for the time being. But God's presence dis- dis- departed, and we're still in exile because of it. So um, when it says, Min that we behaved worse than the nations around us, it literally means. So not only did we not keep the Torah, but we were more pagan than the pagans. And... Uh, as we'll see a little bit later on, please God in next week's share. Uh, it's, it's part of the history of the Jewish people. And, uh, the Jewish people have got great traits, great, great positive traits. But they also, um, got this mishigas that they've got to be more goyish than the goyim, right? They've got to be more goyish than the goyim. So you get a Jewish person in a, a position of office, uh, uh, Harvey Farber. Do you remember a fellow called Belisha? He's very f- famous because he had beacons. Do you remember? Leslie Hall, Leslie Hall Belisha. Leslie Hall Belisha. He was a Jewish member of the cabinet. Yes. And he, and he was terribly, terribly opposed to a Jewish, a Jewish state of, you know, a Jewish state in the land of Palestine because he was more goyish than the goyim. He had to as, show they all, he more, as they all were in As well though. And, uh, you know, the, the, the governor, of the land of Israel was a religious Jew, or some partially religious Jew. Remember who he was? So Herbert Samuel. Samuel. So Herbert Samuel. So he arrived. So the Jews thought, "Oh, here we got a chance. Here we got a chance with this guy." Uh, and they called him the the Nehemiah. They called him Nehemiah, but uh, he couldn't have been more uh, uh, opposite of Nehemiah. Nehemiah came and he uh, sorted the whole thing out. You shall like. He got rid of the interlopers. Herbert Samuel wanted to show he was uh, so partial that he um, he caused terrible problems for the Jews. So this has been the nature of the Jews throughout the ages, to be more goyish than the goyim. So uh, in the earliest times, that's exactly what we were, Rashi says. And that's what the Bosuk means. That we were more rotten than the nations around us. And uh, the Malbim takes Rashi's approach a little bit further. Listen to what he says here. Uh, which will finish with the, 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 uh, the words of, um, uh, the, uh, the Malbim. Or should we finish? No, well, we, the Malbim is a long piece. We'll, we'll deal with the, uh, the words of the Malbim, please God, next week. Uh, I, I just want to say before I, I take questions that, um, uh, again, we'll deal with, uh, the third question. We'll start with the third question again next week.
But next week is going to be the last uh, shear for, there'll be two weeks missing. So it'll be the next, there'll be shear next Monday, but there won't be a shear for the following two, 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 two Mondays. The first Monday is, um, the day, uh, next month. The first Monday is Cholomoid and the second Monday I'll be traveling back from South Africa. Um, so, um, just write it in your diaries that, um, write it in my diary now. There'll be no shear on the 11th, which is, um, 11th, uh, there will be a shear. Sorry, 11th, there will be a shear. Sorry, the 11th, there will be a shear. It's the 18th, which is Cholomoid, uh, Pesach. And the 25th, which is a Monday, the last Monday in April, when there'll be no shear. So those those two dates, 18 and 25 of April, will be no shear. And the next shear will be, please God, on the 2nd of May. On the 2nd of May, two days, I think it's two days before Yom Atzmaut, right? Be on, on Monday, the 2nd of May. And um, But in the meantime, we'll, we'll hopefully um, finish these two verses, 6 and 7. Um, and then, uh, as the, the, the chapter unfolds in a, in a really horrendous, you need a, you need a strong stomach to deal with uh, what's coming up because God describes in horrific detail what he's going to do to the Jews over the next two and a half thousand years. And uh, you'll be able to recognize every single event as God describes it. So again, there'll be a shear next Monday on the 11th. There'll be no shear 1825 April. And they uh, will resume, uh, please God, after Pesach on the 2nd of May. So now's the time for um, where we're up to. We're up to in the middle of verses 6 and 7. And we're going to deal with question 3. Um, so if anybody's got any questions, now's the time to ask. Um, I have a comment, Rabbi. Have a a comment. comment or a question? No. I said a comment or a question. Yes. Has anyone experienced... First-hand Jewish anti-Semitism from Jews. Yes, I have, on more than one occasion. Terrible. A university. What's the Terrible. Basis? What's the basis for that? I've got. It, 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 there's no one answer. There's no singular answer to it. It, it will all. It will. It, it will. There are uh, many reasons why Jews become behave in an anti-Semitic way. Some is a loathing of Israel. Some of the, is a loathing of their upbringing, embarrassment about their upbringing, embarrassment about the way they were forced to be show signs of Judaism when they were growing up, which they resented. Uh, a multitude of reasons. Human beings are unique, so everybody's reason will be uh, they might fit into a category, but they'll be unique to themselves. But um, there uh, it might be uh, reasons of socialism, might be reasons of fascism, might be reasons of anarchy. But and it might be religious reasons, but there are a, a multitude of different reasons why Jews. But Jews are more prone to it than any other. You know, if a, if a Christian becomes an atheist, so so he, you know, so you get the occasional one that becomes an you know anti anti Christian. But uh, generally speaking, they just want to be left alone to their own atheism. Jews aren't like that. Jews Jews when they reject Judaism. They want you to know that they rejected Judaism and they're like you. Uh, we're, we're against. So we see this in the Spanish uh, exile and a lot of the Jews that became um, Christians converted to Catholicism. So they didn't just convert to Catholicism get, and put their, keep their heads down for the rest of their lives. 
they became, you know, they became clergymen. A lot of them became anti-Semitic. Torquemada, who was the chief among the, um, chief among the inquisitors, came from a Jewish family. We know, um, we know Pablo Cristiani was a yeshiva bocha, became a bishop. We know Abner of Burgos was a Rishon. He wrote a parish on the whole of, uh, a whole of Shas and he became a cardinal, right? Uh, so we've, we've had the, you know, and, uh, we had a, we had a very interesting, uh, Larry's house some years ago. We had a, uh, an evening with Cardinal Lustiger. You remember Larry? We had an evening with Cardinal Lustiger. Yep. So even though he wasn't, even though he wasn't an overt anti-Semite, he really was an anti-Semite. And, uh, so the Jews make the worst anti-Semites, right? Everywhere you see an, uh, an anti-Semitic organization, you see Jews or former Jews or children of Jews, uh, involved somewhere along the line. We, we have to be, that's just the way we are. When the Jews commit to something, they really commit to it. Um, okay. Questions. Any other questions before we leave? Harry, Again. I would, if I could have an opportunity to say something about the hair. Oh, yes. So, um, with the, in the case of the Nazir, he is to shave his own head. Yes. In the other three cases, Ezekiel, um, in the case of Aaron and maybe his other sons, I'm not sure who's instructed to don't leave their hair unshorn, and the captive, they all represent, um, a form of mourning. That is, um, um, representative of, of an oncoming or just happened national calamity. Why, is, why do they represent a national calamity? Only so, Yechezka, only Yechezka represents a national calamity. And well, he I think is, the other two, two do. The captive, she just witnessed her nation, her family. Oh, I see what you're saying from her perspective. No, from the, perspective. Yeah, and no, so, but the, from the, the perspective here, the perspective here is Yechezkel is the Jewish, but is the Jewish people. Well, Yechezkel is the sort of the onlooker. Of, no, no, he's the Jewish people. Well, he didn't participate in the sin and neither did Aaron and his sons. Um, when, when his other two sons. Yeah, yeah, but they're external right? to it. And they're the calamity external. was, the calamity was the inauguration, the day of the inauguration of the Mishkan co- went really badly sideways. And if, uh, and if they didn't react in, to perfection, then uh, it would have it could have been a national calamity. It could have uh, been, but, but there's already in Yechezkel's time there already is a national calamity. Well, they had, this is six years earlier. This is it hasn't happened. Six, no, but they've been in exile for five years already. But you, you, the the whole period of the exile from the time that Nebuchadnezzar came to, to from the time that Nebuchadnezzar came to power to the time the base of English was destroyed is nineteen years. Um, this, this is eight years into his reign and 11 years before, sorry, this is, um, 13 years into his reign and six years before the base of Indus is destroyed, but he's already conquered Yushalayim. He's already conquered Yushalayim. In this prophecy? In this yeah, prophecy. at this point of this prophecy, he's in control of Yushalayim. Oh. He's just not, he's just not destroyed the base of Indus yet. But the siege he's, has not happened yet. No, the siege has, of Yushalayim hasn't happened yet. Because at the moment, at the moment, 
Yerushalayim is just a vassal state of the Babylonian Empire. It's only, it's only after um, Gedalia is executed that Nebuchadnezzar decides it's the end of it. I can't be dealing with these Jews anymore. And that hasn't happened yet. Okay. And that's when the siege begins, and that takes 18 months. Eventually they break through, and that's the essence of this chapter. But Yechezkel in this... All three are related to some kind of national calamity and mourning, whereas the Nazir, not at all. Uh, let me look into it. Uh, I'll look into the... I mean, the, the, the bomb from Kiseitse is very tenuous because it's it's the national calamity is for a Goishka nation. So it's not... By us, that's not a calamity. That's a Jewish victory. So there's no there's no calamity there. Um I'll look into it. Let me look into it. And let me see if I can see anybody talks about uh, talks about this. Yeah, I'll okay. tell you who uh, the I got the air dear from was um, Shimshom Raphael Hirsch. All right, I'll, I'll have a look. I'll have a look and see what he says. But I don't speak German. But um, um, I've only got a copy of his book in German on on Tanakh. Maybe I'll find it online. I'll have a look. I'll have a look and yeah, report. I'll, re- I'll report. I'll report back. Okay. Um, if that's it. Uh, we can call a, a, a truce and uh, I hope you enjoyed the share. Uh, again, there's plenty to come and, you know, really it's uh, sackcloth and ashes from here on into the end of this chapter. Um, it's really one of the darkest uh, chapters in Tanakh, unfortunately, and it ranks right up there with Eicha. I mean, it, this is even more explicit than Eicha, uh, what's coming up next. Um, so maybe you, you know, don't eat before you come to the next few shirim. And uh, uh, if you can't stomach uh, these types of uh, prophecies. But again, it's been very nice speaking to you. Very nice uh, interacting with you. Have a great week. Have a great Chodesh. It's a Chodesh, it's a Chodesh Nisan. It's a Chodesh of Nisim. As I repeat in all my shirim during Nisan. If you want to daven, now's the time to daven. If you need something, you need a Yeshua, you need health, whatever it is. It's a, this is a month of Nisim. It's a month of Nisan, and it's a month of Nisim. It's a month of miracles. God is, so to speak, uh, giving stuff away. It's the sales. It's the sales. It's the spring sales. And God's giving stuff away. Okay. Cult up to everybody. Everyone have a great week. Erwin, don't fret. Don't fret that you're a Lithuanian. It'll all be all right in the end. You know, just try and, de- if you need to deal with the guilt, there's plenty of psycholo- psychologists about. All, all Lithuanians should go to a psychologist and uh, try and bear the guilt. Kolta to everybody. Yes, Everyone have a great week. Kolta, Kolta, Kolta. Bye-bye. Thank you.